Good morning, good morning. It is so good to see you. My goodness, I, it's, there's, I don't know if there's anything better than standing out in the crisp morning air with the beautiful bright sun and just seeing all your faces come in. So it's just a privilege and a joy. Ron Gavel, you've got our football, yes? All right, careful now, hold on. All right, all right, I think I'm ready. Yes, all right, thank you. Okay, so for those of you who may be visiting us um, in-house or online for the first time, what on earth is this, right? Well, it's a football. And uh, this reminds us of the fundamentals of our faith. It reminds us of the fundamentals of who God has designed us to be as a church and how we're to function. And so we send it home with somebody every week, and hopefully every time they look at it, they pray for us that we would get more rooted and more sure in what those fundamentals are so that we can be faithful as we take our next steps toward Christ together. Amen? So be on the lookout because you could be next. All right. Well, if you've been joining us for worship over the past weeks, you know that we are camping out in the Sermon on the Mount. And we started our series about a month and a half ago. Um, But we have to remember, you know, we're looking at it in little bite-sized chunks. But when Jesus first delivered it, it was in one setting— And it probably took him about 12 to 15 minutes, you know, beginning to end. So, you know, because we're doing this week to week, it's a little, it's easy to get a little fuzzy on, wait, where we've been and and what, and so it's just so important that we kind of reestablish where we've been, what we've talked about, so that we can truly see and appreciate the continuity of it from beginning to end. So situated up on that hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, Jesus began teaching his disciples the basic foundational elements of the character of Christ followers. We can sum them up in one word, humility. And after the Beatitudes, he went on to use the metaphors of salt and light to help us understand the influence we are to have then right here and now in the everyday places that God has planted us, all the places we live and work and play. And then Jesus described the righteousness that is to be ours Righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Righteousness that penetrates and transforms our very hearts. Jesus then provided his authoritative interpretation of the intent of God's law. You know, where we tend to dodge and invent clever sidesteps around it, Jesus shows us that the righteousness God desires penetrates beyond our actions and words to our hearts and minds and motives. And it's intended to master us even in those hidden secret places. And that brings us to chapter 6 this morning, where Jesus continues his teaching on righteousness, but he shifts the focus away from our personal character and moral righteousness. And he brings our attention to our outward religious righteousness. In other words, he's forcing us to consider the how and the why behind our religious activities. You know, the ones that we're supposed to do as Christians, specifically giving and prayer and fasting. So Jen is going to read our scripture for the morning, but first, I just want to pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to hear your holy word with open hearts, that we might truly understand it. And in understanding, I pray that we might believe it. And in believing, I pray, God, that we would follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
sorry. <laughs> the verse I'm reading is Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before the people in order to see, be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in all the synagogues and in all the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your, hand, your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Thank you, Jen. So Jesus is actually doing in this chapter, um, well, you know, we, we're the ones that separated it in the chapter and verse, but Jesus is doing right here what he did just a little bit ago in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So right after that is when Jesus launches into those six antitheses that we just finished working through last week. And those were meant to just simply be examples to flesh out what he meant. And that was it, that what he meant was that it's about far more than our behavior, but instead has everything to do with our internal motivation behind it. And he does the exact same thing here in chapter 6. Verse 1 is the overarching summary of everything that Jesus is going to be teaching through verses 2 through 18, where he uses the examples of giving, prayer, and fasting to flesh out this driving principle. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So even though he's going to be talking specifically about three different things, prayer, fasting, giving, and those are going to be our sermon topics for the next three Sundays, the message is going to be the same. Those are just the tangible examples he uses to flesh out this one central theme. So you may remember on September 12th when I preached through the salt and light passage in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, and there Jesus told his disciples, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But wait a second. Isn't Jesus completely contradicting himself here in chapter 6 when he says that we're to beware of practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them? At first blush, it may seem so. But Jesus is actually addressing two different sins in each of these verses. In chapter 5, Jesus is addressing our temptation towards cowardice. You know, sometimes we're afraid to be the salt and the light that we're called to be. Even though we're disciples, maybe we don't really want to stand out as different from everyone else. Maybe we're afraid of the potential consequences or maybe the persecution that might come. Whatever the reason, we shrink back. But Jesus says, no, let your light shine to all those around you so they can see in and through you the power and the glory of God. In chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus is zeroing in on our pride because sometimes we kind of like making sure that other people can see just how spiritual we are. And so, you know, maybe we post a selfie of us doing our Bible study or a little picture of us volunteering down at the local soup kitchen because all those likes and add-a-girls 
really confirm that, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. But Jesus says, no, that kind of righteousness is in no way pleasing to God. So basically, when it comes to our outward manifestations of righteousness, whatever they may be, the teaching here is this. When you're tempted to show off, hide. And when you're tempted to hide, live boldly. But whether you hide or live boldly, do it all for the glory of God. As I mentioned earlier, the principle that's laid out for us in verse 1 is the thread that's going to weave its way through the three illustrations that Jesus uses to demonstrate what he's talking about. But not only are we going to see that thematically, it's even in the grammatical structure and the language that Jesus uses. It's the same pattern the whole way through, which leaves no doubt in his listeners' ears that this is all the same point just demonstrated in three different ways. So let's get to, our, to Jesus' first example, our text for this morning. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So at the time of Jesus' teaching, the Old Testament was their Bible. And anybody, nobody I should say, nobody would argue, whether you were a Pharisee or a scribe, maybe a, a common everyday Jew, a priest, it didn't matter. Everybody understood that compassion for and giving to the poor was just simply a given. It, it's just what you do as God's people. Our God has been and still is ridiculously generous. And so as disciples, we're just expected to be the same way. It's one of the ways that we resemble our Father in heaven. When I was utterly poor in spirit, destitute, unable to even begin to help myself, God poured out his love for me to me in Christ. He has given me everything I need for life and godliness. How could I ever justify being stingy toward anyone around me who may be in need? But here it comes again, that stinking sin spiral. <laughs> Initially, and maybe when it's like right when we're first saved, right? We are so overwhelmed and amazed by God's grace and goodness to us that we just can't help. We can't help ourselves. We got to give it all away. And, and at first, you know, we're doing it for the right reasons. That straight edge of truth is holding us steady. But over time, it begins to change because you see, maybe we get a pat on the back and that feels really good. So maybe next time we give a little bit more and we maybe let it slip to a few more people that we gave a little bit more and then we get a plaque. And, you know, mm. and so then before we know it, we are parading ourselves and our checkbooks down to every local charity and we're tooting our own horn as we go. So though it's very likely that that's where the expression came from tooting our own horn. Uh, there's actually not a lot of agreement on what the sounding of trumpets 
really meant. It could have been literal. It's possible that trumpets were blown when substantial monetary gifts were given at the temple, and really it was meant to just encourage others maybe to be like, oh yeah, maybe I should give to that too. Trumpets were definitely blown at fasts when giving was often done in tandem with the fasting. Or it may even have been an allusion to the sound that it made when people put their money into these kind of horn trumpety looking, you know, things for the offering. <laughs> Regardless of whether it was literal or figurative, the point is clear. God is not impressed with our pomp displays of generosity. He's not impressed when the motivation behind our giving is the public, public accolades that we will receive. Jesus calls those kinds of people hypocrites. A hypocrite was an actor. Back in the day, that's what actors were called. So originally, the word did not have the negative connotation that it has for us today. But it is a great word to capture the inauthenticity of a person's life, isn't it? When someone uses the world as her stage, when he puts on a mask or a show to completely hide what's really going on in the, underneath all the veneer, hypocritical righteousness isn't genuine. It's not from the heart, which is what Jesus has been getting at in this sermon from the start. It might look perfect on the outside, such a generous gift. What a selfless person. But when in the secret places of our hearts, we're really just after the praise, the adoration, and the esteem of the people around us, Jesus was like, you'll get that. But make no mistake, that is all you're going to get. Don't expect any fanfare or reward from God. Instead, Jesus said, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Just like Jesus did earlier in his sermon when he talked about cutting off our right hand or gouging out our right eye if either of them causes us to sin, Jesus is using hyperbole here to make his point. Obviously, it's impossible for me not to know what I'm doing. But Jesus uses this almost absurd statement do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, to express just how silent, subdued, and private our giving should be. This is the principle. It's not so much what we're doing, writing a check, giving somebody some money, whatever that it might be. It's what our hearts are thinking and feeling while we're doing it. Jesus already addressed the foolishness and the emptiness of seeking and hoping for the praise of men. But here he digs deeper. Our hearts are so pervasively and yet subtly sinful that we can actually do really well keeping our, our outward righteousness a secret from everyone around us while at the same time congratulating ourselves for just how impressively generous we are. I mean, please tell me I'm not the only one. It's insidious. It's insidious, isn't it? To turn what is meant to be a compassionate, generous act of love and sacrifice into a self-serving act of vanity and pride. 
no doubt about it, my biggest problem is my sin, my love of myself. It is disgusting. It's a reminder of what we have heard these past two weeks, that as disciples, we are called to die. We are to die to the world and its ways. We're to die to all of the people around us, their approval, their acceptance, their praise, and hardest of all, we have to die to ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that when Jesus explained here just how private and quiet our giving should be, he was, quote, sounding the death knell of the old man. And again, as we've emphasized over and over throughout the last several weeks, this kind of giving, this kind of dying to self, this kind of self-forgetfulness, as some have called it, this life in the kingdom of God is not possible unless we receive the gift of faith made available to us through the shed blood of Jesus. And then we're changed from the inside out by the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. There are two things that I want to draw out of that last sentence. If you've been keeping up with us each week throughout this series, you've seen this slide a a few times by now. One of the attributes of God, who is the creator and sustainer of the universe, is that he is everywhere present, all present, omnipresent. The psalmist captured this beautifully in Psalm 139 when he wrote, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God is everywhere, all the time. And it's not just out there. He is right here right beside you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he is within you, always, everywhere. There's nowhere we can go. There is nothing that we can do that escapes God's watchful eye. So if you manage to keep your giving a secret to every other soul on the planet, if you manage to, to, by God's grace, you know, don't even acknowledge it to yourself, God knows God sees always, everywhere. And honestly, that reality should not only convict us, but it probably comforts us at the same time. Depends on what we're doing, right? (laughs) Convicted or comforted, knowing that that is the case. In this case, we're meant to be encouraged. Because we're promised that when the Father sees what we do in secret, he rewards us. But this concept of reward is a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't seem quite right that, you know, we don't seek the rewards of this world, but we instead seek reward from God. Doesn't that still make our giving or our praying or our fasting about us, about what we'll get out of it? So our confusion is legit, but notice that Jesus clearly recognizes that everything we do, we do for a reward. And really, 
God wired us that way. You know, think about it. No matter what we do, what, you know, whatever, what, what, oh. no matter what we do, we do it be, for whatever we believe we're going to get out of it, right? So when you choose to stay in bed, why do we do that when the alarm goes off? Well, because we believe that those few extra minutes of cozy comfiness in the bed is going to be worth it. You know, why do we choose to get out of bed? Well, because we believe that we'll keep our jobs. If we get out of it, that'll be our reward, right? Why do we work out? For the reward of staying healthy. Why do we put money into savings? For the reward of whatever it is that we're saving for. Jesus acknowledges this reality of reward-driven behavior, and he basically said, you just need to choose. Do we want the momentary and fleeting rewards of this life? Or do we want to store up reward from our Father in heaven? When we do an act, an act of righteousness, in this specific case, when we give with the right heart, when we remain ever conscious of just how needy we are, we were and we still are, when we are so reminded of just how good and faithful he's been to us, and we give then in that place and we do it in secret, he, he's glorified in that. He is delighted by that. And he loves to bless or reward that. It's not necessarily always in the typical way that we think of reward. Obviously, God can reward us with what and when and how he wants. And he does this side of heaven and the other. And this doesn't come directly from our text, but as I thought and I prayed about God's reward and what it might be, I just kept coming back to the whole, his whole plan and purpose in our lives to begin with. His highest aim, what brings him the greatest glory and us the deepest joy, is our ever-continuing transformation into the likeness of Christ. When we choose to obey him, because we love him, is there any greater reward than becoming more like him? Is there any greater reward than being rescued from that life of darkness, plucked right off that wide path, headed for eternal destruction? Is there any greater reward than being washed by the red dot of Jesus' blood, justified and made right with God through faith? Is there any greater reward than being placed squarely on that narrow path of life in the kingdom of God, filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, sanctifying us day by day by day, helping us to become more like Jesus inside and out? We may not necessarily receive tangible material reward from God. We may. That's up to him. But what I can guarantee is that there is no greater reward than the joy that knowing that God is being glorified as Christ is being formed in us. This is why we celebrate communion. There's no more potent reminder of the magnitude of what God has done for us and giving to us while we were drowning in the depths, overwhelmed by the debt of our sin, poor and completely powerless to get out of it ourselves, to save ourselves. 
It's in and through remembering that we find that level ground again. All of us at the foot of the mighty cross. Communion helps us to remember that every single one of us is needy, desperate for the saving and transforming grace, which is exactly what God has so generously given us in Christ. And so to prepare our hearts for communion this morning, and as we contemplate this message that we have received, the band's going to lead us as we sing about the mighty cross on which our Savior died for our sins that we might be forgiven, set free, and transformed for the glory of God. Thank you.